Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Degnan. This week, we're going to find out what Pennsylvanians think about clean air in the Commonwealth. We'll also be meeting a fascinating woman. She had a lot to do with the development of the COVID vaccines, and she started on it some 20-some years ago. We're also going to be finding out about Child Safety Seat Week with reminders to keep the kids safe. But starting us off, there's a senior fair coming up this week, and Beth Patano is the community liaison with Griswold Home Care with your invitation and all the details. Beth, welcome. It's nice to have you here to tell us about the upcoming Senior Resource Fair. So first of all, give us a little bit of the background as to where this came about, what it's involved and all of that good information. Then we'll get into the where and when. You got it. Thank you so much for having me, Paula. So I'm the community liaison with Griswold Home Care. And back at the height of the pandemic, we formed a group called Caring Hearts of Wyoming Valley. And the reason we formed the group at that time was to keep us healthcare professionals connected at a time when we could not get out and do our traditional calls, marketing, sales, um, hospital settings, doctor's offices, everything was closed down, if you remember. So the group has stayed really, really tight since then. We have about 25 members, again, all representatives of various forms of healthcare services related mainly to the adult and senior population. So last year, we hosted our first resource fair on a much smaller scale, and we had an amazing turnout. And really, our mission with our group is to provide education and information on our services, because we found in our individual roles that the information is lacking out there in the community. Oftentimes, people don't know of all of the valuable resources available to them. So that was the reason we decided to try the fair last year. And because of the great reception that we got, we thought, well, we're going to go bigger and better this year. We have over 32 vendors. And what better place to draw in our seniors than Mohegan, Pennsylvania? And that sounds to me like it is a common concern when there are things that are happening in many organizations because, as you said, you're talking about the senior population and some of them have Mm -hmm. not embraced technology. First of all, let me ask you this. How do you get the word out to them that this is happening so that they can get all the good information that they need? So with Caring Hearts, again, um, we've done a lot of events out in the community. We volunteer, whether it's Meals on Wheels, um, we participate in all of the active adult senior centers in Luzerne and Lackawanna County, where we'll go out, we'll host maybe an ice cream social, and then we'll have a little bit of time to, you know, speak on our individual services, leave information for those, those members. And then just in our, again, our primary roles um, were out in the community. So, you know, for us here at Griswold Home Care, we provide non-medical home care. So we're in homes. We come across so many people and families, family members who are caregivers to their loved ones who are in need of respite or a break or other services. 
And through the group, for me personally, because of Griswold and our Live Assured tagline, I rely on my counterparts throughout Caring Hearts because I trust them. I know that the services that they they provide as they know ours. So we refer back and forth to one another with that confidence just have gained such momentum in the group doing what we do out in the community and through the fair we're hoping to touch so many more people who again just are not aware of so many services that are available to them. Well let's talk about some of the folks who are going to be bringing their over 30 vendors so you have a list I'm sure Beth. We have a list, absolutely. We have 32 vendors this year, so I'm super excited about that. Last year, we had about 14, so we've doubled, and I'm continuing to get calls even to this day of more people that want to be involved. So who knows, next year, maybe we'll have double what we have this year. But we have representatives of, again, home care, home health, palliative, hospice services, pharmacy, independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing. We have rehabilitation representative insurances. We have vision care, hearing center, Caring Transitions, which is a wonderful company up in the Lackawanna County area that provides help with relocation and cleaning and decluttering. And our biggest draw this year we're so happy to have is the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veterans Affairs, because in my role in what we do, we service so many veterans out there in the community that have no idea of the services that are available to them. So this is valuable information for them. We hope we get a lot of veterans to to come out and learn about all of the things that are available for them because of their years of service. In addition, we have the Pennsylvania State Attorney General's Office who's going to be there providing information on how to avoid senior scams, senior fraud, which is you know very relevant today with cell phones and, and all of those type of things. We have the Highway Safety Patrol, tons. Just come out, we're going to have raffle baskets, we're going to have a DJ, it's gonna be a fun, fun event really different than your average health fair. Well, then we need to know where and when. Absolutely. So it is going to be held again at Mohegan, Pennsylvania, right when you come in the the hotel entrance to the right in the front two ballrooms on Tuesday, September 26th. We are there from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The Public is welcome. It is free to attend. With your attendance, again, you'll get the chances to win raffle baskets, and we have a super special grand prize that will be detailed on the day of the event. Ooh, now that in itself sounds like a lot of fun. That's wonderful. We're super excited. And when you're talking about all of the different people who are going to be there, did you get requests from some people who attended last year and said, hey, Beth, you know, how about you bring this group or how about you bring that group? Absolutely. In Caring Hearts, again, we have about 20, 25 committed members of Caring Hearts, but through our connections, we have other connections out there in the community. 
Elder Law, Bucci, Laser Vision, to name a few. Harold's Pharmacy, which is the oldest, longest running pharmacy, I think, in our area. So through our connections, we have continued to grow on that. And these their services are thrilled to be participating in the fair. Because again, it's just a continuation of just sharing all of the valuable, relevant information to our senior population. And hey, we're seniors out of age 55. This is relevant to even those from 55 on up, those who are in need of services immediate, or you might need these services down the road, but at least you'll have the information. I remember being 55, so I'm right there with you. is <laughs> <laughs> the new 35. I keep telling myself that. Well, so. I, I think you're absolutely right, Beth, because mm-hmm. when it comes to all of this, and, and again, when you talk about the certain things, you talk about the state attorney general being there and the scams. Mm-hmm. That's not just yes. affecting people 55 and older. That's, oh, gosh, no. That's affecting so many people. You talk about the, yes. the folks from the the veterans administration that are going to be there. It's not yes. just veterans that are 55. There are younger ones. So this might, oh my be, gosh, yes. this might be a senior resource fair, but I have a funny feeling that you might see other people coming in going, well, I'm not a senior, but. <laughs> Absolutely. No, there's, there are definitely services represented that, that apply to 55 and under as well. Um, here at Griswold, again, we service veterans who are of a much younger age. And again, they don't even know the services that are out there or their family members, what services that they can benefit from. Absolutely. Is there a way to get in touch with Caring Hearts? So we have a Facebook page. You can follow us, like us on Facebook. It is Caring Hearts of Wyoming Valley. And there's ways that you can message. We're happy to answer anybody's questions on any of our services. We all have that capability. My email is on there. So feel free to reach out. We're constantly putting up more and more information as we're heading into the 26th for our fair in hopes that we get a wonderful, wonderful turnout. We're all super excited about it. We're ready and, again, just excited to meet everybody and share our information. That is our mission. Then I'm going to give you the last word. You issue the invitation, tell them where, tell them when, and it's the invitation from Beth. Thank you again, Paula. So I hope to see you all on Tuesday, September 26th at Mohegan, Pennsylvania from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Come on out. It's a free event. I promise it'll be fun, exciting, informative. Chances to win some great raffles and a super, super grand prize. I hope to see you there. Thanks again to Beth Pantano, Community Liaison with Griswold Home Care, with your invitation to this coming's Senior Fair at Mohegan, Pennsylvania. Now we're going to be wrapping up National Child Passenger Safety Week with Rebecca Ryback. She is with the Northeast Highway Safety Program, and she has the reminders so kids stay safe. There's going to be a lot of car seat checks and a lot of extra education to parents and kids on how to properly wear their seatbelt or be in their car seat. We just want to remind everybody in Pennsylvania, the law is that Everyone under 18 must be in a car seat or be wearing a seatbelt, of course, depending on your age. About two years ago, Pennsylvania adopted a new law, which parents may not realize, is that children must be rear-facing until two years old, minimum. 
So that means that if your child is zero to two, they must be in a rear-facing car seat. We like to go by the best recommendations. So we tell parents that even though the law says that your child could be rear-facing until two, that we would like you to max out the recommendations of that car seat, which means that look at your stickers, read your manual. Some car seats allow children to be rear-facing until 40 pounds, 50 pounds. They may be taller than your average two-year-old, three-year-old. We have a two-fold here. So we want you to be mindful of the law, but we also want you to realize that if your child is rear-facing, it's the safest. So max out the recommendations of the car seat and have your child rear-face as long as possible. And when it comes to picking out a car seat, is there any kind of rule that we should follow? Because now we see that there are many available in many different places. Exactly. And with car seats, unfortunately, you know, we do know that some of them are on the expensive side. And what we're finding is that parents are turning to these websites uh, selling uh, car seats that are knockoffs of the real car seats. So you really want to be mindful of where you're getting a car seat. And when you're choosing the right car seat, you really want to follow what your vehicle can handle and what the owner manual says about which car seats are best in your car. Because Some cars, you have to see, if you have a two-seater little convertible, you may not be able to fit a certain car seat. If you have a truck that maybe is smaller or has like one bench seat, maybe you can't have a certain car seat in that. So you really have to see what your vehicle is and what car seat will fit in that vehicle. And then which car seat you could afford, which car seat you're going to use correctly every single time, and especially what is going to fit your child. So that is what we look at when we say picking the best car seat, just as long as it fits your vehicle, fits your child, and that you can use correctly every single time. And that is going to be the best car seat for your child. And then as far as car seats are concerned, there are some that can actually be used during that entire transition, correct? Car seat manufacturers have become a lot smarter. Um, They have car seats that will go from infant all the way up to booster seat age. So you could have that car seat for 10, 11 years. So they are more expensive, but in the end, of course, you're going to save the money by not having to transition. However, if you do need to transition, we want to remind you, you know, we did talk about how the law in Pennsylvania says your child needs to be rear-facing until two, but max out that car seat, stay rear-facing as long as possible. Then you'll move to a forward-facing car seat, and then we get into the booster seat. Now, at Pennsylvania law states that a child must be in a booster seat from four years old to eight years old. Okay, however, we have a lot of eight-year-olds that are smaller in stature and weight. So again, you want to follow the instructions on the uh, car seat to make sure you might be able to have that child in a booster seat longer, even though they hit that eight years old age. What do you want to leave us with, Rebecca? If anybody has any questions on car seats or car seat fit or um, you want your car seat checked, you could just go on the web and search for Safe Kids Car Seat Checks. You'll find a page that'll come up and you could search in Pennsylvania or any state that you're in and you could see some car seat checks that are happening in your area. And then you could go and make sure that your car seat is fitted to your child correctly. 
It was also Roundabout Awareness Week, and Rebecca has some reminders there, too. People do not realize that you do have to yield coming into a roundabout. So if you see somebody coming around the roundabout and you're coming in from a side road, that you have to yield to the people that are in the roundabout. Thanks, Rebecca. When we come back, I'm going to introduce you to an inspirational woman who had much to do with the COVID vaccine some 20 years ago on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Catalin Carrico. She is an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as professor at the University of Skved in Hungary. Just part of her inspirational story includes receiving an award for years of research that spurred development of the COVID-19 vaccine, research that began over 20 years ago. Now it's time to meet Dr. Catalin Carrico and find out about her amazing journey. Dr. Carrico, thank you so much for joining me. There are so many things that you are are involved in. So first, if you wouldn't mind, give our listeners your background and that will lead us into what we're going to be talking about today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I am a Hungarian. I was born in Hungary. It's a small town, and I even grew up in a smaller town. Just 10,000 people lived there. My parents had only elementary school education because of the war. They couldn't study, but they encouraged me and my sister, who is three years older, to study. And um, I did well in school. By elementary school, actually, I was biology competition, third best in the country. I studied in high school, in this local high school, and ended up in university. I graduated as a biologist. I had a daughter, and with my two-year-old daughter and with my husband, we emigrated to the United States in 1985. I worked here at Temple University for three years. I worked in Bethesda one year and 24 years at the University of Pennsylvania up until 10 years ago when um, I went to Germany by myself, leaving my family behind and worked nine years at BioNTech, the company who together with Pfizer developed the COVID vaccine, mRNA vaccine. That covered a lot of ground. And now one of the reasons, will you tell our listeners one of the reasons we're talking about today, because you are one of the faces of American innovation. Yes. When I worked at the University of Pennsylvania, we worked together with Drew Weissman, my colleague there, who's still working there. And we developed how to make messenger RNA feasible to uh, using human studies. And we filed a patent. This patent was used by Moderna as well as uh, BioNTech Pfizer to develop this vaccine and many other different products. And it was important to filing the patent because the companies can license it and then they can protect their development. So that's, uh, I was selected, uh, one of the faces of American innovation. And explain RNA, because we, of course, we hear COVID and we all know what that means. And we hear some of the different companies that have been providing vaccines. Mm -hmm. We know who they are. But what is RNA? Because it's involved in all of it. Actually, messenger RNA, which uh, uh, contains these vaccines and many other products now, 
250 different products in clinical development right now. So the messenger RNA, we did not invent it. It's nature invented. In every our cell, there are millions of messenger RNA carrying information for our cells to provide information what kind of protein we have to produce. And that these proteins make us alive. So we just borrow the idea from the nature and uh, this messenger RNA is just a blueprint for uh, what kind of protein has to be made. And in uh, um, actually the virus itself also has a messenger RNA, which um, codes for many different proteins, but we selected only coding sequence for a piece of this uh, viral RNA, which codes for those critical protein that we can develop immune response, which will be neutralize the virus. And that's what you want for all kind of vaccine. You have to neutralize, you have to eliminate, you have to target and eliminate that virus. And that's what this mRNA in that vaccine does. It's the Baydol Coalition who are behind the uh, award. And there are others that are going to be receiving the award. And the interesting thing is, if you go to their website, which is baydolecoalition.org, they have the listing. And your story is so fascinating to think that this may never have even happened. Yes. So 1980, Baydol senators from both aisle because uh, Bay was a Democrat and uh, Bob Dole was a Republican and they came together and decided that when there is an invention made on the taxpayers' money, then this uh, should be uh, assigned to, to the universities because prior to that, it was just sitting on the shelf in the government and nobody was using. But if you make interested the university to license it out and then you get uh, new companies, innovation will be useful for the public. And that's uh, why it was so critical, this failed all act. And, uh, you know, with uh, my colleague, Drew Weissman, we talk that, oh, we don't want to license, we want everybody to use. But we did understood that, we did understand that if without license, nobody will invest and nobody will spend any time, any money because they cannot protect the investment so that because they have to spend millions to, to test out, to do development, product development. And if anybody can use by the end, they spend like millions and everybody can jump in and then, you know, they cannot collect back anything. So we did understand this, and then so that's what um, we filed the patent, and this is why it is important, because all of this innovation now is helping the public. Many, many other companies are spent out from from universities and, uh, and using the federally funded research to develop the product, which will help people who are sick. And it's not just COVID that you're talking about here, because now that it has gotten that far, it may even be able to go into other disease areas? Indeed, already uh, advanced level of clinical trial going on for other viral diseases like uh, HIV, or not just viruses actually, for bacteria, tuberculosis and uh, parasites like malaria. So vaccine development based on messenger RNA is already in many different fields. 
not just infectious disease vaccine, but also for therapeutic like heart disease and inherited uh, genetic diseases treatment is also in the process. And again, I go back to the mini biography that they have (laughs) on this Faces of Innovation page. And you mentioned the meeting with Drew Weissman. And who would have ever thought that that darn photocopier, which sometimes we always have problems with, actually kind of worked in your favor this time, big time. Indeed, it was 1997. And uh, at that time, we could not uh, get the publication, which we had to read a lot, uh, scientific publication. And then uh, you had to get the journal, you copy out and, you know, you go home and read those uh, copied pages. And what happened, I was waiting while Drew, uh, the new guy from uh, coming from actually Fauci's lab in 1997, and he wanted to develop HIV vaccine. I was working in neurosurgery. I want to develop a therapeutic uh, mRNA for treating uh, uh, stroke patients. And then I, uh, you know, while waiting that he was copying and I want to copy also, I, you know, I just brag about what I am doing because he was the new guy. I have never seen him, especially using that machine there. <laughs> and so I introduced myself and he was saying that uh, HIV vaccine he wants to develop. And then we started to collaborate. So from 1997, we worked together and, and uh, we together discovered that this uh, RNA I am making is so inflammatory. Uh, I I was not aware of that. And uh, so together we tried to understand why. And when we understood why, that we tried to see that whether we can make it non-inflammatory. And that's what uh, our invention all about. It's non-inflammatory messenger RNA. How things happen (laughs) and you would never, you would never think. And when people hear such things and they hear about how these different advancements come about, it's not overnight. The mini bio on that page is fascinating as you, and I wish we had time to just read the whole thing. But when you started looking into this, about how long did it take from there to fruition? So 97, when we started to do the experiments and in 2005, when we filed the patent, so it was already eight years. And then after 2005, you know, the, the development of the vaccine happened in 2020, so it is a decade. We worked on it, and other scientists also worked on it. A lot of people, they are not aware of that messenger RNA vaccine for other infectious disease, for example, for Zika virus, for influenza, for rabies. They already were introduced prior to 2020. They tested, tested on human trial. Just the people were not aware of because it was like 200 people were tested on these uh, new vaccines and not 200 million. But it was prior to 2020, these were already in human trials. But people thought that, oh, it was just overnight. I mean, I can tell you how many overnight I was up and reading and writing grants and working on the results and try to come up with a different kind of um, a solution for technical solution. And all of these companies, I mean, CureVac uh, was established 2000. So 20 years before the COVID happened, there were already mRNA companies in Germany. And BioNTech was also 2008, uh, Moderna 2010. So 10 years before, already companies 
working on developing messenger RNA for therapy. Amazing. And who knew back in 1997 that (laughs) in 2020, that here it would become such a vital part of the world. Amazing. (laughs) Yes, I might also said that, you know, because I want to develop in for therapeutic purposes. So the inflammatory nature was for vaccine at the beginning was not important, but because I wanted to develop the mRNA for therapy for, for stroke patients, they don't need more inflammation. So this was for me more urgent because I already at that point, I worked 10 years. From 1989, I worked on messenger RNA in the University of Pennsylvania, this kind of therapy. And then I thought that all of this work is useless if I if it is so inflammatory. So even other reason was why it is inflammatory and how we can make it non-inflammatory. But it turned out at the end that even for vaccine, we did need it. And during this whole time, you weren't just sitting in a lab someplace with a notebook, a computer in your hand. Well, maybe back in way back in the start of it, you might know you might have been putting everything down on pen and paper, but you actually were looking for jobs. I, I think people don't realize what happens behind the scenes. They just see the end result. But in your case, it is such a fascinating story. Yes, uh, so I was, um, up until I was 58 years old, I did all of the experiments with my own hands. I cultured the cells, generated the RNA, characterized it, and reading the papers during the night, writing up my notes, tried to apply for funding. We also, together with Drew Weissman, we established a company, and we get uh, funding from uh, small business grant funding. So we tried so many avenues, uh, you know, to raise money and uh, generate more data. So for a lot of uh, work, you know, perseverance and, and, you know, I am also a mother and I have a daughter, you know, who, who immigrated when she was two years old and she just could see how hard I worked and she ended up to be a two times Olympic champion. So in rowing for the United States. So, you know, I try to present to the mother scientist also that, yes, you show your example to your children and then, you know, they will work hard too. What? A daughter that's an Olympic champion? Wait a minute. That came out of left field. Yes, actually, my daughter was, you know, in our family, she was the, the star. She got the gold medal in Beijing and one in London in Holland. So she got two gold medals and she was five times world champion for the United States. And um, it is also important that Title IX, again, a Bayh-Dole Act, was, they worked on it to make sure that the women will get also support at the universities for their sports. The same amount of money spent on women as men. And that's, again, you know, thanks to uh, these uh, senators' actions. You know, it happened. So anyway, I was usually introduced uh, in different uh, big events that I am Susan mom. <laughs> but now that my daughter comes with me, some kind of ceremony, you know, for award ceremony, they introduced that she's Scotty's daughter. <laughs> well, absolutely brag, mom. You should brag and she should brag and everybody should be bragging because what you have done, what you have shown your daughter she can do, I'm speechless. And I guess the other thing, too, is when you're working in a university setting, 
I'm assuming you must have students that are interested in pursuing maybe the same kind of career that you have ended up being so amazing at. They must say to you, it's not happening fast enough. I I need this to happen faster. Why can't? And do they get it? After they sit down and talk with you, do they really understand that it's not overnight, snap your fingers, instant gratification? <laughs> yes, of course, uh, instant gratification, is, then, then is, you shouldn't be a scientist if you wait for that. And if you like spotlight, you should go uh, be an, an actress or influencer, but not a scientist. A scientist is working in quietly. And But anyway, I, I was not, never had a student because, uh, you know, I... I was not uh, funded well, and I just had enough salary. Just I could do all of the experiments myself. So, you know, it's um, unfortunate. I wish I could uh, educate students about uh, different things, but, um, well, I am doing right now. I am accepting awards and try to inspire the new generation to to tell them how exciting things to be a scientist, to to think about something you need solution and maybe your result will help somebody to be cured or or maybe not you don't live long enough but maybe the next generation will help you know to help somebody to to be uh, cured and and the, being in the laboratory and doing all of this experiment is so exciting you you have full control of uh, what experiment to do, what this result means. You have to read more to understand what other people already have seen. And then you put uh, more information out there. And so it's just fascinating. I am so glad uh, that I I even get paid for it, you know, (laughs) just to do all of the research. It is so much fun. And I'm going to ask you right there. That's another thing that I'm sure a lot of the students might not realize because hearing our conversation today, I'm sure many are saying, oh, well, she must be. But that wasn't the case because you, throughout a lot of this, were not employed or employed where you were getting jobs, where you were making money. That was also not something that said, oh, You just come right in here, Dr. Carrico, and we are going to give you a gazillion dollars and look what you came up with. Yes, of course, uh, the money is not there. But, uh, you know, if you are a scientist, you don't need a hobby because that's your hobby to read and do the research. So you don't need much. So I, you know, I started uh, 89 with like 40,000 salary and 20 years later I get 60,000. All of these technicians get more around me, but uh, this was not important. The science was exciting, and and that's what counts. You know, the money will not make you happy. This was my pleasure to be able to get the to get your story out, and be able to sit here and talk with you because you're just a Jim who we didn't even know was out there. But every time we hear any of the COVID talk now, I'm going to thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. What would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, you know, actually, I was writing a book about uh, my life, mostly that how you can develop, uh, how you can persevere, how you can and be happy. You could be much happier if you would follow some of those uh, things that um, actually at age 16, I learned from uh, from a book, which how to handle stress. 
And even the most uh, bizarre, you know, hurtful things, you can see something positive into it and build on it. And, you know, when I go out to accept an award, most of the time I think, I say, thank you, all of the people try to make my life miserable. Without them, I wouldn't be persevere. They made me work harder and be better. I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I'm going to have that made into a T-shirt. <laughs> Thank you for making my life miserable. On the back, it's going to say, you made me better. <laughs> I wouldn't be, wouldn't be here without all of those people. It has been my pleasure to get the story out about you. And congratulations on, please, continue to do what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. What a pleasure it was to talk with Dr. Kedlin Carrico and congratulations on your award. Dr. Carrico also has a new book coming out in October and it's available now for pre-sale on Amazon. Don't go away. Next, we're going to find out what Pennsylvanians think about air pollution across the Commonwealth on Special Edition. Welcome back. Lois Bauer Bjornson is the Southwestern Pennsylvania field organizer with the Clean Air Council. She has details of a recent survey on air quality here in the Keystone State. Lois, I understand there has been a new poll from the Environmental Defense Fund and Pennsylvania voters have weighed in on different <clears throat> different things. So can you give us an update and tell us all about that? You mean as far as the methane poll that, that they have done and uh, how... Uh, 57% of Pennsylvanians um, really believe that there should be stronger regulations and late detection repairs on methane. That's sort of it in a nutshell. Yes, um, you know, 57% of Pennsylvanians really uh, strongly feel that we are one of the largest, well, we know we are one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters and think that we need to be doing something about it uh, to protect ourselves and future generations in the climate. It turns out that we've had these recent wildfires. We've had so much with the atmosphere in Pennsylvania. So how does all that fit in when we're talking about the uh, the emissions from methane? Wildfires and, and methane emissions are really two different things. Uh, methane emissions really come from the oil and gas industry and fossil fuel industry. So that's different than wildfires. But, but uh, what happens is that the wildfires then in turn exasperate everything and contribute, obviously, further to global warming and climate change. When the poll was conducted, can you give us a little bit of the idea of exactly what the positive aspect of climate change might be if we could all work together and have that happen? One of the most positive things is that us as a human species will continue to exist. So I'm putting it bluntly, and by us curbing our emissions and curbing our fossil fuel addiction, and, and turning to renewable sources, it's a win-win for everyone. We're talking about these emissions. It just seems like it's a daunting task because we don't really have direct contact with all of what's happening. It's the oil and gas operation. So what can we, as people who take the poll and say we'd like to see things change, is there anything that we can do? Most definitely, you can speak to your legislators on your local and state and federal level and let them know that this is what you want. And those are simple phone calls. Those are simple letters written. 
those are, you know, getting neighbors together and saying, hey, we would really like to see um, something happen here. And, and what can we do to move this forward? And that's really people power. So uh, that's a definitely um, strong influence with elected officials and really anyone, frankly, when we're, we're talking about climate change and human existence, it's a shame that it's been politicized, but really climate change is something that humans have created and we need to take charge of it and do something about it. And you are the uh, Southwestern Pennsylvania field organizer with Clean Air Council. Could you give us information about the Clean Air Council? Because there may be some who have never heard of that before and wonder how maybe they could get involved more in something like that. Clean Air Council is a Philadelphia-based organization that has been around for 50 years. And we have been uh, helping people fight for the right to breathe clean air um, in Pennsylvania. So I work on issues all around fracking um, and the oil and gas industry, petrochemical hubs, and so on and so forth. Everything oil and gas, I like to say. But if you're interested in volunteering or becoming a member, um, simply go to the website, which is cleanaircouncil.org. And if you need to reach out to me, um, I can be reached at lbb at cleanair.org. Lois, when we're talking about such things and, and you know, you did put it very bluntly that things, things could get a lot worse as time goes on. Go back to the poll where Pennsylvanians are ask questions. And again, sometimes people don't realize what the impact is, because as you said, there was a difference between methane and the wildfires, but the wildfires and it actually being here in this area, we had an impact. We had, we had hazy skies. Sometimes it takes something like that for people to understand that there's actually something that can happen. So is there anything with methane that people might be able to say, oh, this is where that's coming from? Well, I recommend, again, that there's a, an organization that I work with called Earthworks, and we work with FLIR cameras. And, and what the FLIR cameras do is they um, let you see what pollution is actually coming off of oil and gas facilities. It's a fantastic research tool to take a look at. It also has videos where you can actually... They'll show you before, and uh, then they put the flare camera on an oil and gas facility, whether it's a compressor station or a well pad or a leaking pipe of some sort. That's where the um, Eldar protections come in place that need to be strengthened um, also. So by just even capping these leaks and, and seeing what is actually coming off of there, it makes you very well aware of what you can't see. Air is not tangible, so it's hard for people to understand that, wow, they could actually be breathing something in that is, is making them ill. But that's where the wildfires really woke people up. So if, if you can imagine an invisible wildfire that you're breathing in every day from the oil and gas facilities, and then industry is not made to cap them, then if you can think of it in those terms, then that may be helpful for people. And where is because that? Because essentially that's what's happening. Where is Sorry, that again? Apologize. It's called Earthworks. Earthworks and you can, they have a website? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do have a website. I believe it is earthworks.org and, and probably on your computer there, if you could do did a quick Google search, you would find that. Right. But I work directly with Miss Melissa Offshoff um, out of the Philadelphia area and she comes and does um, flare footage for me at different sites and things like that. 
that's one of those things then that people may not even know about. And that's why when you talk about things that you can't see, sometimes you think that there's nothing out there that can hurt you. So that's a wonderful resource when people need something tangible to be able to understand. And also, we want to let people know, because as I've been reading about the information from the poll, I hear in Pennsylvania, of course, we have many of the fields and we have many of uh, the stuff that's going on as far as all of the uh, oil and gas wells are concerned. And people get worried about jobs then because those types of things did create jobs here in Pennsylvania. But, but I believe the poll points out that that doesn't mean that taking care of what you're talking about is going to have any impact on those jobs. Right, exactly. So first thing is that I think that, unfortunately, southwestern Pennsylvania is an extractive side of the state. And we always have been, and we've done it very well. Extraction is normalized, whether it's coal or steel or now fossil fuels, you know, with the oil and gas industry. So I think one of the things that people need to try and get away from is just that type of extraction. You know, why are we not extracting and, and, you know, working on clean energy with wind and solar and geothermal? Those are highly feasible and very good jobs that, that we're having, you know, in Pennsylvania. However, people are just sort of stuck in their old ways of thinking the only way you can have a job is through the fossil fuel industry. Um, but that is done by design through industry to make people sort of afraid of losing something. And there's statistics that um, show really how many jobs are in the oil and gas industry. I know where I live, I grew up in this area, and I know three people that have a job in industry. So if there's all of those jobs, I'm not seeing it. And the small towns that were once coal towns, when the industry, coal industry left, you know, they sort of fell apart. Well, the oil and gas industry didn't bring those towns back to life either. So, you know, the jobs that I see are from outside sources, from other states, such as Louisiana, Texas, North, North Dakota, and such, even from Colorado. Um, you know, for example, the petrochemical hub that is an hour from me that was built by Shell, no one in Pennsylvania can run it. They actually have people running it from Louisiana. So the job issue or the job story that we're constantly told is, is not essentially true. And I think if some people did some experience, or I mean, some, just some experience, some, an experiment, and asked a few people that they know personally or within families. And I'm not saying that people don't have jobs from it because they do, but they find that the number is not as high as that they're always saying. And if they look into renewable energy jobs, there are a lot more jobs there, and those jobs aren't killing jobs. People aren't getting sick and dying from them, and families aren't being injured, and you know their land and air and water is not being destroyed in the process. There's so much information that, Lois, if you could boil it down, what would you like to leave with our listeners today? I would I'd love everyone to go to the Clean Air Cup website. We have numerous resources on climate change, on methane rules and regulations, and the LDR rules and regulations as well that should be in, in, implemented, and also what people can do to help uh, at the local, state, and federal level on those issues. But I'd like people to start to think out of the box a little bit and when people say things such as the only jobs you can have are killing jobs in the oil and gas industry, to look elsewhere and realize that that is not essentially true. If you take a look at the market, everything is market driven. You know, when we had a little bit of the 
almost crash of the market when industry was bottoming out, all of the executives put money back into their stocks to make it look as if industry was doing well. So, you know, these are just things that people want to try to, again, look outside of the box and look for better resources that we have within ourselves and within our own capability of changing things. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to help you. And again, if I can do anything further, you know, please contact me through my email, which is lbb at cleanair.org. And then also please reference the cleanaircouncil.org website for, you know, further information regarding all of this. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. 